The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Got through Luther. We did not deal with Zwingli or with the Anabaptists. So I just want to say a few words about them. Um, obviously not sufficient. I'm not going to give out you know outlines. You guys got them last time, I hope, and still have them. But um, we're going to just look briefly at the Swiss Reformation under Zwingli and then a little bit about the Anabaptists before we get into Calvin. Really, no more than five minutes total. Um, Ulrich, Ulrich Zwingli uh, was born in 1484, and he died in 1531. He was Swiss, and he uh, led that branch of the Reformation. Early on in the Reformation, you've got the German side, and you've got the Swiss side. Who was who the major reformer leading the German Reformation? Luther, of course. So we've got Zwingli who led the Swiss Reformation. Now, Zwingli was a Catholic priest uh, and saw the need for Reformation. And he got hold of Erasmus's Greek New Testament and just started reading it. And the more he read, the more he saw that there was just a big difference between the Catholic Church and the New Testament Church. And it just came alive as he read the Greek Testament. And so as he went on, he saw, saw the need for Reformation, just started to make changes just by simply reading the Word of God. Uh, he just started preaching simple, clear messages from the Scripture, expository preaching. Up to that point, they'd had, had a kind of a, uh, a preaching cycle. They were given a certain passage to, to read and to preach on. Sermons tended to be somewhat brief, and they would preach on that, and then they'd go on to a totally different passage the next week. He scrapped that and just started preaching through the book of Matthew, just right through Matthew. And the more he preached, the more people said, wait a minute, we've never seen these things before. I mean, this can't even be in the Bible. You see, that's just the difference between topical preaching and an expository method. In the expository method, you're just moving through, and there's things in there you never knew were there. And it suddenly opens your eyes and say, wait a minute, and you go home and check that Bible that's been on the shelf, and yeah, I guess it really is there. It's been there all along. Yeah, you know. Well, they didn't have Bibles, of course, so that it was the priests and the teachers that were giving them. But still, the theology was inadequate because they were not dealing with the whole counsel of God's Word. Well, Zwingli um, continued to preach. Some changes started coming. The people were getting excited. And the council in his city, Zurich, met together to decide whether they were going to let him continue to teach this way. They decided they would, and that's kind of when the Reformation in Switzerland started. They permitted his teaching. Um, and it said, quote, that Mr. Ulrich Zwingli should just continue and keep on as before to proclaim the Holy Gospel and the pure Holy Scripture in accordance with his capabilities. So they said, go for it, green light, and he just continued to go. Now, as uh, he taught from 1523 to 1525, the debate continued. Uh, reforms expanded. Priests and nuns started renouncing their vows of celibacy and started marrying. Not necessarily each other, but maybe. I mean, whoever, you know, just whoever God led. And so that was kind of shocking, of course. Catholic images were removed completely from the churches. The gospel, gospel simplicity in everything was what they're looking for. Worship, simple worship, simple singing, simple church buildings. And you remember where, where all that ornate stuff came from? It came from Constantine's mother. Remember that? 
and she, Helena, and she started building these big basilicas and all the stained glass and the statues and all that. They went back to before that, simple rooms where you just heard the Word of God and sang praise songs to God and prayed to Him. That was the Swiss Reformation. Just a simple reading of the New Testament. Well, as he went on, some other group, some other folks among them, I'll go ahead and finish Wingley's life, um, but we're going to get to the Anabaptists in a minute. Um, he had a dispute with, with Luther over the Lord's Supper. And that was probably one of the biggest issues at the end. They were trying to get the German Reformation and the Swiss Reformation together so there would be one reform movement. Uh, but they could not agree. They had a meeting at Marburg in 1529. They could not agree on the Lord's Supper. On the Lord's Supper. Now, the Catholics, what do they believe about the Lord's Supper? Transubstantiation, which meant that when you were taking the bread or the wine, what is it you were eating? right the literal body and blood although if you were a layperson you'd never get the wine or the blood that was just for the priest but the literal body of christ now how in the world could that be well aristotelian philosophy explained that how it could taste like bread look like bread smell like bread but still be literally the body of christ um well i don't believe that but uh that's what they believe well when luther came he didn't really make many changes in that doctrine they call it consubstantiation as opposed to transubstantiation, but he almost, it's almost the same view. Almost the same view. Well, Zwingli, what do you think he thought about the Lord's Supper? Simplicity. That was Zwingli. And it's just, it's bread is what it is. And it's wine. That's all it is. And so the Lord's Supper is just a memorial. We're just trying to remember Jesus Christ. That's all. Well, they never could get together. Luther, in typical Luther style, Luther did everything boldly and courageously. He was like a bull, sometimes in a china shop. Okay, and what he did was he wrote. He took a big piece of chalk and wrote on a on a uh, wood table, "Hocus corpus meum." This is my body. In Latin, they had the whole dispute in Latin. All theological stuff was held in Latin. This is, and he slammed his glove down and said, "Refute that. This is my body." And, he's, and Zwingli was said, Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Is he a door? I'm the vine. Is he a vine? You know, this is metaphorical language. Well, they never got together. And they agreed on, some, I think it was 11 out of the 12 points, but they could never get together on the Lord's Supper. And so, in effect, there were kind of two reformations in Europe. There was the Lutheran Reformation and what came to be known as the Reformed Reformation. There were just two wings and they never really did get together on the Lord's Supper. Well, out of that time, when, when Zwingli was just preaching and teaching the simple word of God, there came a group of people who started reading even more simply than Zwingli did. And they were called the Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists is an insult, really, just like Puritans was meant to be an insult. We'll learn about them in the future. But Anabaptists means re-baptizers. They were re-baptists. Why re? Because all of them supposedly had been baptized when? When they were infants, the Catholic Church baptized infants. And so the Anabaptists began to question infant baptism. Well, Zwingli never got to that point, did not question infant baptism. So we didn't get to complete gospel simplicity there. Um, but they started to make an issue of it. And this man, Conrad Grable and a few others, started saying, where do you find infant baptism? Now, I'm a Baptist. And most of you probably are Baptists. And I've said before, there are three types of scripture that support infant baptism. You know what they are? Scriptures that have infants but no baptism. Scriptures that have baptism but no infants. And scriptures that have neither infants nor baptism. Those are the three categories that they use. Okay. 
Well, the Anabaptists saw that and said, wait a minute, <laughs> you don't see infant baptism anywhere in the New Testament. And so they realized that Jesus intended or that God intended uh, baptism to be for believers only. And so they're kind of stuck because there's nobody around that's doing this. And so they baptized themselves. On January 21st, 1525, they met and baptized one another. Conrad Grable baptized Georg Blaurock. Blaurock baptized Grable and everyone else pre present. And from th this, they would receive this insult, Anabaptist, rebaptizers. Uh, everyone in Europe was against the Anabaptists. They had no friends. All right, the Lutherans were against them. The Calvinists were against them. The Catholics were against them. They had nowhere to go. And they taught some radical, radical ideas. Uh, like, for example, that the church is a family of faith. They taught the idea of a believer's church. Church should only be believers. That's kind of the connection with the idea of, inf of uh, adult or believer baptism, isn't it? Since baptism is the right of entrance into the church, it should be for believers only. So the believer's church is one of the idea of a family of faith. They called each other brother or sister all the time. All right. They also had another unbelievably radical idea, separation of church and state. And it was radical. It was very threatening to the governments. That's why they were persecuted no matter where they went. They taught separation of church and state. Balthazar Hubmeier. How many of you heard of Balthazar Hubmeier other than Josh? Okay, a couple others. Balthazar Hubmeier was an Anabaptist leader who wrote many things. Uh, one of his famous works was On Heretics and Those Who Burn Them. And a very important work in which he was basically arguing that heresies should be destroyed by logic and by scripture, but heretics should not be burned by the state. And we all agree with that, don't we? I mean, but back then, basically, if you're a heretic, they were going to kill you. So just these radical ideas, and they were called by some the radical reformation. The word radical means getting to the root, and they went to the root of everything, the New Testament. They wanted to be a simple New Testament church. They also believed in pacifism. They were strongly pacifistic. They followed the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if, you're, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other. Uh, they didn't get involved in wars. And this was huge because at the time, the specter of the Islamic Turks was over all of Europe and everybody was getting ready to fight the Turks, almost to the point where Catholics and Protestants alike would join together to fight the Turks. And here's this group of people like a cancer in the middle of the whole body politics saying, we shouldn't fight at all. If the Turks sweep across, we should just let them go. God's strong enough, sovereign enough, that we don't need to take up a sword. Can you imagine Jesus taking up a sword and killing a Turk? That's how they argued. They believed in pacifism. They also um, had some, I mean, and there's a lot of strength in it. You listen to this and you say, well, you know, I can see these arguments. Believer baptism, a believer's church, right? Simple New Testament faith, practice church discipline. These things were important to them. Uh, and you could say, well, that sounds, that sounds good. But there were some incredible excesses too. For example, in uh, 1536, they had the Munster Revolt. Anabaptist extremists under John Matthias and Jan van Leiden took control of a town called Munster in Germany. They expelled the Catholic bishop and most of the other Catholics. Uh, they believed the end of the world was imminent. And by the way, many people in the, fifth, in the 16th century believed the end of the world was imminent. Luther did. Luther thought that the world would end. As a matter of fact, he was translating the Bible into German, translating the Bible into German, going in order. And he decided to jump out of order and translate the book of Daniel. Why Daniel? Well, keep coming on Sunday morning. You'll find out why. But the book of Daniel talks about the end of the world. And so he said, we've got to get Daniel into the hands of the people. So, I mean, the, he said, the world is going to end before I finish the Bible. So he jumped out of order and translated Daniel so that he could get it into the hands of the people. 
so that they could read and understand what was happening to them. And by the way, he wrote in a letter, he said, the world runs on so excellently to its end, I don't think I will have time to finish the Bible in German. He finished it seven years later. Okay, so that shows how close he felt the end of the world was. That's Luther now, Martin Luther. A lot of them did, except one man didn't, right? John Calvin. Uh, he didn't have anything to do with eschatological speculation. He would never have bought some of these popular books that are going around today, which are eschatological speculation. Um, but at any rate, these Anabaptists, they really uh, got into this. They felt the world was imminent, and they took over the city, and they made it into the new Jerusalem. And they went back into the Old Covenant with Old Covenant laws, polygamy, uh, death sentence for anybody that disagreed with the leadership. They became very much like a cult. And finally, the Catholics who were expelled, gathered, and they were well organized, came back with an army and basically wiped the city out. So the Anabaptists were a mixed group, mixed bag. Do you know any of the descendants of the Anabaptists today? Do not include Baptists among them, but who, what groups do we recognize would be Anabaptist descendants? The Amish, that's right, Mennonites, after Menno Simons, who was their key leader theologically. The Brethren, Plymouth Brethren, a lot of these groups come down from the continent and the Anabaptist movement. There is a great deal of debate about the relationship between English Baptists and continental Anabaptists. I don't really think there is much of a connection between the two. I just think they're reading the same book, namely the New Testament. Any questions about the Anabaptists? They immersed. And interestingly enough, not only did they immerse, they were immersed. Most of the time when they were executed, they were executed by total immersion until the bubbles came up. Yeah, basically, that's, you know, let the, let the baptizers be baptized is basically the way that, I mean, they suffered greatly, terrible, terrible suffering for the Anabaptists. All right, wish I could spend more time with them, but we need to move on into Calvin and the English Reformation. Now, originally, this was titled Calvin and the Puritans. I just can't do justice to the Puritans. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the Puritans in the second nine-week segment. They'll be some of our heroes of the faith. I love the Puritans. I think they're wonderful people. No way I'm going to give them ten minutes. No way. So we'll give them a whole night uh, in the future. But let's look at Calvin and the Reformation. And here is a, a gift I got when I was finishing my Ph.D. work at Southern. I did my Ph.D. on Calvin. And it hangs up in my office downstairs. It's a pretty good picture of him. Why don't you hold it up? <laughs> Here's Jack Evans holding a picture of John Calvin. Never thought the day see the day. There he is. <laughs> okay. That hangs up in my office downstairs. Uh, it's been here since I've been here. But now when you walk in, I had somebody walk in and say, is that is that Luther? Do you realize how different he looks from Luther? I mean, Luther was a round-faced German guy, clean-shaven and all that. That is John Calvin. He looked a lot like John Knox, so if you ever get confused, you can guess one or the other. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when Christie tried to buy this for me, they were out of it temporarily. And um, the guy who was selling these said, you know, we've got plenty of knocks and they look a lot alike. He wouldn't be able to know the difference. And she said, you don't know my husband. He'd know right away the difference between John Knox and John Calvin. So, what? Had to try. Well, she was shrewd and now I'm holding out for Calvin. Okay, look at your outline now. We're going we're gonna to talk tonight about probably one of my greatest heroes in church history. And, and not so much that he led a heroic life. He did, but not like Luther. Luther's life was heroic. Calvin's mind was heroic. And that's what, that's what I think is the great legacy here of John Calvin. It was his teachings. It was his approach. More than anything for me, it was Calvin's methodology, how he handled Scripture. It was not so much the so-called five points of Calvinism. We'll talk about that, but that came actually much later than Calvin. It came from Calvinists who were trying to organize his doctrines. 
okay? But really, it's his methodology, and we're going to get to that. I try to employ his methodology in everything I do here, and I think it'll become clear when we see just what he did, but he is uh, worthy of, of imitation. All right, John Calvin. Let's look at some quotes about Calvin by some others. Um, the Little Council of Geneva, that's one of the uh, government uh, leaders in Geneva after Calvin's death, said, God gave him a character of great majesty. Theodore Beza, who was one of Calvin's best friends and a successor in Geneva, said, I have been a witness of him for 16 years, and I think I am fully entitled to say uh, that in this man there was exhibited to all an example of the life and death of the Christian, such as it will not be easy to depreciate, such as it will be difficult to emulate. So in other words, he just lived a Christian life. It's going to be very difficult to tear it apart and certainly difficult to imitate. And this is my all-time favorite quote about John Calvin. I mean, absolutely phenomenal quote. Karl Barth, who was a 20th century German theologian, one of the most brilliant men that ever lived, uh, he basically turned around liberalism, destroyed it with his commentary on Romans. We'll get to that, God willing, in a few weeks. But Bart was a genius, and his writings are very deep and difficult to understand. This is what he said about Calvin. Calvin is a cataract, a primeval forest, a demonic power, something directly down from Himalaya, strange, mythological. I lack completely the means, the suction cups, even to assimilate this phenomenon, not to speak of presenting it adequately. What I receive is only a thin little stream. And what I can then give out again is only a yet thinner extract of this little stream. I could gladly and profitably set myself down and spend all the rest of my life just with Calvin. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, here, for example, is Calvin's commentary on Daniel 7 through 12. If you were to open this up, you're just reading page after page of good, clear Bible exposition. And it's still good 500 years later because he didn't have anything to do with current events. He didn't write anything about what was going on at the time didn't really include very much scholarship that had gone up uh, to this point. It was just him dealing with the text in a clear-headed manner, and it's still useful 500 years later. As a matter of fact, if I had just one commentator and wanted to understand a text, I'd go to Calvin before anyone else just because of his methodology, his approach. Still useful today. It's just uh, an amazing thing, and this is what Karl Barth said. I just pick up any book of the 60 or so volumes like this that he wrote. You open it up, and you read, and you gain insight that you didn't have before. It's unbelievable. Wherever you scratch it, it's gold. Almost everybody else had a great deal of fluff. You know, there are things they dashed off quickly, low quality from time to time. Life is busy, isn't it? Not that way with Calvin. Everything he wrote is almost like he was a channel of this doctrinal approach. We're going to talk more about what it was uh, that made him so unique. And then David Steinmetz. I like this quote because it gives you a little slice of his personality. Yes, sir? Well, I didn't mean that literally. <laughs> um, Karl Barth was a Reformed you know, scholar. He was, from, he was Swiss. Uh, what he's meaning is that I have no way to explain how a man in a, such a short life as Calvin could put out this much high-quality stuff. How do you explain it? So he uses this word. It's just uh, figurative, not literal. I don't want to take Karl Barth literally here. What he's doing here in his letter to Edward Ternason, what he's saying is, I'm having a hard time doing Calvin. Now, that was, I mean, he was teaching theological students at the time. And he's saying, I just can't do it justice. What I get from Calvin is this little thin stream of what I think he's saying, and then what I give out is even worse. And so that's about what I'm up against tonight. So um, that's Karl Barth. Now, this quote, John Calvin was not a man who inspired immediate confidence in those who first met him. In an age of dynamic and colorful personalities, from Martin Luther to Teresa of Avila, 
Calvin cut a curiously diminutive figure. He was a slight man, even in his youth, shy and bookish, never robust, plagued in his later years by a series of chronic illnesses that forced him at times to dictate his commentaries and treatises while propped up in bed. He was never more content than when he was left alone and spent some of his happiest years as pastor to a congregation of French refugees in the German city of Strasbourg. Yet there is no Protestant leader in the 16th century, with the obvious exception of Martin Luther, who left a more profound mark on Western culture than he did. For more than 400 years, Calvin has influenced the way successive generations of Europeans and Americans have thought about religion, structured their political institutions, looked at paintings, written poetry and music, theorized about economic relations, or struggled to uncover the laws which govern the physical universe. So, uh, how in the world can we defend this? I don't really know. Uh, but just saying that his ideas and his methodology affected everything in Europe after him. Up to this point, there was no one who systematized and organized Bible doctrine the way that he did. Now, let's go over a brief sketch of his life. First, his life as a student. And by the way, Calvin hardly ever wrote very much about himself. When you open up a commentary or something, you're not going to read hardly anything about Calvin. You're not going to find out much about his life. He didn't really think that was his business and didn't really think you cared or should. He figured that you were going to one of his commentaries to try to understand Romans chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Okay, and he'd explain that. So it's really very hard to get information about Calvin's early life. We know much more about Luther, for example, than we do about Calvin, because Luther would be happy to tell you about himself any time. But uh, Calvin didn't say much. We do know he was born in France. He was French in Noyon, July 10, 1509. His father, Gerard, wanted him to be a lawyer. 1523, Calvin was sent to Paris for education. He studied at the College de Montaigu, a bastion of Roman Catholic orthodoxy in the struggle against Lutheranism. So he's going right to the heart of the best Catholic school in France. And he's learning Roman Catholicism. And in 1523, what is all the rage? What is everybody talking about? Talking about Martin Luther. They're talking about the 95 Theses, right? They're talking about the Diet of Worms and Luther's struggle with the church. And he's hearing it all from Catholic from the Catholic side. All right? Trained in nominalist theology in the Church Fathers, Augustine, Chrysostom, especially Augustine, by John Major. He started learning those things. No indication whatsoever of any Lutheran Protestant convictions while in college. No interest in it, it seemed. All right? 1528, he was sent by his father to Orléans to pursue further legal studies. His father died in 1531. Uh, Calvin was embittered against the Roman Catholic Church because his brother Charles was excommunicated. I don't know exactly why, but I know that this happened. And so it started to create a little separation between him and the Catholics. Also, because his father was dead, he was free to pursue whatever avenue he wanted to pursue. And what he really wanted to do was be a humanist. He wanted to be a scholar. He wanted to be somebody who'd sit down and read the ancient Greek writings and write little treatises about it. He wanted the life of a quiet academic, and he wanted that the rest of his life, even after his conversion. He wanted to just be him and his books off to the side, everybody just leave me alone kind of thing. And that's the way it was. So he went back to Paris to be uh, to study humanism. We've already discussed one famous humanist who was kind of the all-time humanist in the 16th century, Erasmus. That's right. So he wanted to be like Erasmus, a guy who worked with books and letters all his life. So he uh, wrote a commentary on Seneca's De Clementia, seemed to be headed to be a humanist scholar like Erasmus, the commentary that he wrote on Seneca showed an amazing knowledge of classical literature. It also showed kind of humanist methodology of analyzing argumentation and logic, comparing it with other scholarship. This methodology would actually be with him the rest of his life. So he learned this, 
and he would apply it. And somebody once said, he used humanism to destroy humanism. It was very interesting. He took their methodology and he turned it back on them to show the futility of, of a world without God, let's say. The emptiness of the ancient Greek classics without God. So, very interesting. Now, his conversion, you put it in quotes, obviously he had to be converted at some point, but we just have no story. We don't really know much about it. All we know is all of a sudden he's writing the Institutes in 1536, out of nowhere. So, um, there's a little bit of mystery here. He never wrote about it much, but it seems in the year 1533, sometime in this year, Calvin became convinced of Protestant doctrines and came to saving faith in Christ. This is what he wrote. This is in his preface in the Commentary of Psalms. And at first, whilst I had remained thus so obstinately addicted to the superstitions of the papacy that it would have been hard indeed to have pulled me out of so deep a quagmire by sudden conversion, God subdued and made teachable a heart which, for my age, was far too hardened in such matters. Having thus received some foretaste and knowledge of true piety, I was straightway inflamed with such a great desire to profit from it that although I did not attempt to give up other studies, I worked only slackly on them. And I was wonderstruck when, before the year was out, all those who had a desire for the true doctrine ranged themselves around me to learn, although I was hardly more than a beginner myself. So it wasn't long before Calvin was teaching people theology, doctrine. And so he started to work on it. Soon, though, he had to flee France for his life, and he never returned, as far as we know. Roman Catholic authorities persecuted the French Protestants mercilessly, so he had to run, and many other French with him. Now, the first time we really see Calvin and try to understand him is in the Institute, 1536. Now, I've got right here the 1559 edition of the Institutes. This is what you would be able to buy if you wanted to buy the Institutes, Christian book distributors, whatever. I mean, I don't think it's been out of print in 500 years. So, I mean, it's, they'll always be publishing the Institutes. But this is not what he wrote in 1536. It, it just went through an incredible evolution. 1536 was a simple, would have been a small book about this big. It was little more than a handbook on Christian doctrine. But it was revolutionary in its approach. He was the first one to really start doing this kind of thing. He went through the Apostles' Creed and just started opening up doctrine and just explaining it as a handbook for catechism for people who wanted to know more about Christianity, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He also wrote in 1534, before that, his first theological piece, although it was published in 1542. His first piece was against the Anabaptists, and it was against an Anabaptist doctrine called soul sleep. Does anybody know what soul sleep is? So when you die, you go neither to heaven or hell, you just go into a kind of a soul cryo state, cryogenic tank or something, and you wait for the second coming. Um, Say again? Uh, maybe. I think it's possible. But uh, Calvin just destroyed soul sleep. Psychopanikia uh, is what he wrote. Psycho, suke means soul. Panikia means the awakeness of the soul, being awake all night. Um, it's an interesting word, but basically he shows uh, from some key texts, for example, when Paul says, um, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You know, he says, what is it which, when absent from the body, is present with the Lord. What would it be? What could it be but the soul? It's got to be the soul. Okay? So they basically, um, you know, he dealt with soul sleep there. All right, what page are we on? Um, page three. The Institutes. Now, he begins the 1559 <coughs> Institutes with a great statement. <coughs> I'd like to read it for you. I've got it printed here. Good. I love this statement. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Think about that. 
All of wisdom consists in two parts. True, sound wisdom. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? When you stop and think about it, you organize it this way. All right? But, while joined by many bonds, which one proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God in whom he lives and moves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves. Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. These, sorry, Then, by these benefits, shed like dew from heaven upon us, we are led by those rivulets to the spring itself. In other words, everything you see in yourself, all your capabilities, lead back up to the source, God himself. For in him we live and move and have our being. If you want true wisdom, you must know God. If you want true wisdom, you must know yourself. And what do you think Calvin saw about himself or ourselves? Total depravity, sin. And if you want to know yourself, you need to know... And this is one thing. I mean, this gets very practical. You wonder, how does Calvin affect my approach to ministry? Well, I'll get really practical. Um, you, I've heard lots of devotionals for kids. Like, I mean, we're in a, uh, a basketball league. Okay? Um, and they have these devotions. And I would say nine out of ten of the devotions have one lesson, one point. God loves you. Over and over and over. Well, does the Bible say anything other than that? Well, absolutely. Like, for example, you someday will stand before God on Judgment Day and give an account for your life. Don't you think children should know that? Other things besides. And so what I'm saying is that we have to have a true knowledge of ourselves. And a true knowledge of ourself from the same source as a true knowledge of God, the Bible. You're not going to get a true knowledge of yourself any other place than the Bible. That alone puts the light on the soul so we understand it. All right, now, after writing the Institutes in 1536, he gave himself to exhaustive studies in the Bible, church fathers and the reformers, Luther, Melanchthon, Butcher. He was a very hard worker. He got about four hours of sleep a night for his whole life. He had no children. Uh, he married later on. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, he, had, he didn't have a lot of home responsibilities. He gave himself totally to this work. All right? Um, he became a very skillful theologian with an incredible memory, but at the cost of a somewhat broken health for the rest of his life. He died relatively young. Um, but he was a hard worker. Now, there's a story of a debate early in, in Calvin's ministry in which, you know, and this is the time when all of Europe is talking about the Reformation and they want debates. You remember Luther versus um, uh, Cajetan and some of his other opponents, the Diet at Worms. He, they, have, they have debates and everybody's kind of into it. There wasn't uh, ESPN back then. You know, you didn't have... The satellite TV, you know, you want exciting things. So these town halls would be full of people for these debates. And at one point, Calvin debated this uh, Catholic guy. And back then, they all were working from the same editions of the church fathers. They weren't like different publishers. Everybody had the same books of Augustine and Chrysostom and all that. They're all working with the same books. And Calvin would say, okay, in book 18, page 46, somewhere in the middle, it says, and he'd quote for about eight minutes. You know, book 24, you know, upper left-hand corner, Augustine says about that such and such. I mean, and they're just, the more it went on, the crowd was amazed. And this guy was getting more and more intimidated, you know, because Calvin seemed to be holding himself back. Well, tell us what you really think, you know, this kind of thing. Incredible memory, incredible mind. And not just a memory, but the ability to understand the kernel of each argument and put it together. This is why Karl Barth said, I don't understand it. I don't know how anybody can have that clear a mind to see through that amount of material and bring it all together. 
Well, needless to say, he won the debate. But it shows something of his mind. Now, let's learn something about Calvin's personality. He's leaving France, and he's already written the Institutes, 1536. He's on his way to Strasbourg. And what does he want to do in Strasbourg? What's the desire of his heart? He wants to study. He wants to read. He wants a quiet life with the books. All right? Well, it's not going to happen. God had other plans for Calvin. So en route to Strasbourg, to give himself a little life of quiet study, he passes through Geneva, Switzerland. He never could get away from Geneva. Anyway, William Farrell comes to him. Farrell was a reformer. He's already starting to do the work of the Reformation in Geneva. He hears that Calvin is coming through, and he says, the answer to my prayer is we finally have somebody who can teach the people. Now, the Reformation in Geneva up to that point had been mostly political. They wanted to check the power of the Roman Catholic Church, so they started to do some things government-wise. It had no biblical base at that point. It was just all political. All right, So there really almost wasn't a Reformation, although Farrell had started some good things. He just did not have the capability to teach the way that Calvin would and did. So anyway, he's on his way through, and this is what Calvin says about their interview, their time together. Farrell finds him wherever he's staying. I don't know if he's in his hotel or maybe he's already packed up and ready to go on to Strasbourg. And he confronts him. He stands in front of him, and this is what Calvin wrote. Upon this, Farrell, burning as he was with a marvelous zeal to promote the gospel, instantly put forth all his efforts to detain me. And having heard that I had several particular studies, for which I wish to keep myself free, <laughs> well, I've got some books I'm interested in reading, and I wanted to write a little tract on something. And, uh, and then there's, uh, you know, I've always been interested in Seneca. You know, I wanted to read a little bit more about Seneca. So I have some studies I'm interested in. Anyway, he saw he was getting nothing by entreaties, so he went so far as to lay a curse on me, an imprecation. You can imagine his hands up. And he says that it might please God to curse the rest and quietness I was seeking if in so great a necessity I withdrew and refused aid and succor. So that's Calvin's writing. Let's put it in regular words. I hereby curse, I call God to curse your studies, that you'll be cursed in everything you do, cursed in your body, cursed in your sitting, cursed in your rising. Calvin is just blown away by this guy. And uh, he said, I was so, if you keep reading, he said, which words so horrified and shook me that I desisted from the journey I had undertaken. In such a way, however, that feeling my shame and timidity, I didn't want to commit myself to discharge any particular duty. He said, in effect, I didn't want to do what he asked. I didn't want to go. I, I was just motionless by this curse. Eventually, Farrell won him over, uh, and he stayed in Geneva. So what would you do if a guy's in your face like that? I'll tell you what, we don't reprove each other enough. You know, May God curse you if you don't come to evangelism training. May God curse you if you don't come to our outreach. All right, I don't know. Maybe it would be more effective, I suppose. We're kind of wimpy with each other, aren't we? Don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But anyway, Farrell, key guy, keeping him in Geneva. All right, so his first post in Geneva was as a professor, professor of theology at the college, but it wasn't long before he began to preach weekly sermons. The Reformation in Geneva was weak and just beginning. Reform had been brought in as a political move, as I, as I talked about. Very shallow theological base, and Calvin's preaching would change all that. Now, this is what he says. When I came first to this city, the gospel was indeed preached, but matters were in great confusion, as if Christianity had consisted in nothing else than the throwing down of a few images. So, in other words, there was no reformation, really, that had occurred. <clears throat> there were not a few wicked men from whom I suffer the greatest indignities. That would plague him the rest of his ministry. There's some people that are just never going to be born again, frankly, and they're going to be in your town, and they're going to be in your church, and going to cause you trouble. They're going to cause you trouble. Actually, Luther, when he listed the nine qualities of a preacher, number nine is the willingness to be hacked and vexed by your people. 
And if you, basically, it's it's a way of saying if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Um, but I mean, Luther was hacked at and vexed his whole life, and so was Calvin by these people. They were called the Libertines, and they believed they should be free to live however they chose. And Calvin was big on church discipline, and um, you know, it just they had constant problems. Well, one of the very first things that that uh, Calvin did was begin systematic expository preaching, book by book. That's what he did. This went through books, books of the Bible. He also worked with the local government to advance the Reformation. Now, Calvin's four great arenas of labor, exegesis of Scripture, that's commentary, systematic theology, the institutes and lectures to his students, preaching, verse-by-verse exposition, and church government. I really would add a fifth, and that's being kind of a the European reformer. He was a world leader. So he did that through his letter writing. He did a lot of writing of letters and had a great influence all over Europe through his letter writing. All right, he sought to have the people sign confessions of faith. He was trying to weed out the Catholics from the Protestants. And thus began Calvin's vision of a truly Christian society. A true vision of the church included three key areas. This is how Calvin defined the church. You have a church if you have these three things. The right preaching of the word, the right uh, ordinances, use of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline. When you have those three things, you have a church. Are we missing any of those? Number three, yes, what is that exactly? Hmm. At any rate, Calvin believed all three, and I think he's right. Um, Very, very interesting. And by the way, that would weed out parachurch groups like Campus Crusade for Christ and Navigators. On what point? Well, hopefully they're teaching right doctrine, but they don't administer the sacraments, what we call the ordinances. They don't do the Lord's Supper or baptism. And neither do they really do church discipline because they're not a church. So, uh, you can see how that works. That's a church. Right preaching the word, administration of what we call the ordinances, they call the sacraments and the church discipline. Um, church government, I mean, so the local, uh, this is wrong, by the way. It shouldn't read church government, the local civic government. Civic, that's very important. Um, very important. I'm sorry about that. That's a mistake. Uh, there were a series of councils, interlocking councils, civic government in Geneva. The little council had 25 members, council of the 60, obviously had 60, council of the 200 had 200, and then the general council was all of the citizens. All right, they were the government there, but they're all church members, of course. They're all church members, and they began to get a little weak on the Reformation. They were, they were waffling, and so Calvin sent out a um, confession of faith, and the people didn't want to sign it, especially the Catholics, especially they were represented, although in a minority, in the church council. But in order to please the Catholics, they stopped backing Calvin. Calvin was left hung out to dry. Uh, there were a couple of issues, minor issues, uh, that started to come up. The nearby city of Bern in 1537 uh, tried to persuade the Genevan councils toward a more Lutheran view of the sacraments, the use of baptismal fonts and the host in the Lord's Supper. These are not major issues to Calvin, but he decided to draw a line in the sand. He was going to die on these points. And he didn't have the support of the civic government, and so they expelled him from the city. He and Pharaoh were expelled from Geneva. He lost his job, so he's kicked out. So he goes to Strasbourg, where he wanted to go in the first place. So he and Pharaoh are walking down the road. You can imagine what kind of conversation they had. Now, look, I was heading to Strasbourg to begin with, and you got me into this trouble. Now, you know, back and forth. Now, I'm sure they had prayer and fellowship and enjoyed that time. So they're on their way to Strasbourg. And now, what what does Calvin want to do now, after he's had this Geneva experience? Is he hot for another pastoral ministry? What does he want to do? He's even hotter now to begin that academic life he was always hoping for. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm, I'm 
you know, if people ask me, am I a Calvinist? Well, it depends what you mean. I mean, do I believe in everything that Calvin taught? No, he believed in infant baptism. You know, uh, I do not believe in infant baptism at all. So, you know, there's, there's really, frankly, no theologian from history that I agree with everything they taught. And that should teach me something about my theology. You see what I'm saying? Everybody has a weak spot. Everybody. It's amazing. As I look through church history, they all have something, I think, amiss. Now, I may be amiss. Huh? Jesus Christ. There's nothing amiss in his theology. Or the Apostle Paul, for that matter. So, uh, we can stick with them. Yeah, and, yeah, there's some similarities. There, there really are. Okay, so he goes um, to Strasbourg, but he doesn't want to go to Strasbourg at this point. He wants to go to Basel. And what does he want to do in Basel? He wants to be a quiet academic. Well, this time it's not Farrell that stops him. It's Martin Bootser, page 5. Martin Bootser steps in, and I don't think he called down curses on him, but basically said, look, there's a bunch of French refugees in Strasbourg, and they need a pastor, and you're the man. So go to it. So he did. In 1538, he began a ministry among French refugees in Strasbourg. But it was a much nicer ministry. It was more peaceful. He was able to do some writing and, some, and, and the work that he wanted to do. In 1539, he published a French edition of the Institutes, greatly expanded. So the Institute's growing. It's getting bigger, more full. He rearranged it and restructured it. It had followed the Apostles' Creed. Now it starts to change a little bit and begins to organize. He basically, with his Institutes, is putting out bins, organizing biblical doctrine thematically systematically he's organizing it you know the doctrine of the word the doctrine i mean it's the whole thing as i as i remember the division it's um god the creator and god the redeemer is how he organizes the whole thing and then breaks it down from there is that right steve the knowledge of god the creator and the knowledge of god the redeemer book one book two that's how he organizes it and breaks it down from there so he's just he's setting out bins and then he's going to go through and put scripture in its proper order you see what i'm saying by proper order, I don't mean he's saying that there's something wrong with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I mean logical, logical order. So he's doing this. He's also publishing the first of his commentaries. Now, with the commentaries, what's he doing? Verse by verse explanation of the text. And his first commentary was what book do you think? Of course, Romans. Got to do Romans. Now, if you understand Romans, you understand Christianity. If you get Romans wrong, you get Christianity wrong. So he starts with Romans. And he has to write a little defense. Okay, why in the world do we need another commentary on Romans? He said 500 years ago. How much more today? When, you know, but I think every generation you need a good, clear exposition of Romans for your generation. It's not that the doctrine changes, but that we change. We come at it from different situations. But he begins with a defense of why he's writing this commentary. In this defense, his letter to Simon Grenaeus, he explains his methodology in writing commentaries. Very important. I remember, he says, this is to Simon, I remember that three years ago we had a friendly discussion about the best way of interpreting Scripture. Does that pique your interest? What's the best way to interpret Scripture? Well, it should if you're a Christian. All right. The plan which you particularly favored was also the one which at that time I preferred to any others. Both, both of us felt that lucid brevity constituted the particular virtue of an interpreter since it is almost his only task to unfold the mind of the writer whom he has undertaken to expound, he misses his mark or at least strays outside his limits by the extent to which he leads his readers astray from the meaning of his author. All right, lucid brevity, clear and brief. Clear and brief. That's what he sought to do. And he was clear and brief. You may say, how is this brief? But realize back then, I mean, they're going through huge, huge. This right here is Acts 14 through 28. 
and Romans 1 through 16. This is Romans. Let me see if I can find Romans. That's about it right there. Now you say, how is that brief? But realize Romans is a long book and I would say he's about a page per verse. Maybe a little less. And when you read, you know, you're dealing with you know, original sin, justification, propitiation, these deep themes. A page per verse is almost sometimes frustratingly brief. You read it and it's like, oh, I wish he'd gone on. I wish he'd kept talking because it was getting clear. But he just, he was rigid, rigid about lucid brevity all the time. I want it clear and I want it brief. Um, the other guys were publishing 10 volumes on Romans, 8 volumes, this kind of thing. Whole life work just doing Romans. Problem is nobody's going to read it. Who's going to sit down and read 10 volumes on Romans? You know? Huh, Martin Lloyd-Jones might, yeah. Sounds like him. Preaching for six weeks on one verse or a half a verse or one word even. Anyway, he had a very busy life in Strasbourg, four sermons a week, daily lectures, theology, etc. I'm going to keep going here. 1540, he um, married Idolette de Burr, uh, wife of an Anabaptist, one of his own converts. He led her to Christ and then married her. They never had any children. Um, she was a blessing to him. They, they, he really loved her, but we don't know much about their private life. Um, one thing I skipped, he did make strong efforts to help the Reformation in France. It was going badly. The, the Protestants in France were getting persecuted. They were getting killed, actually, martyrs. And he was doing everything he could to help them. He dedicated one of his versions of the Institutes to the king, king of France, trying to explain Christianity to the king of France. Uh, he dedicated a commentary on Daniel to the French martyrs, Protestant martyrs. And why? Because Martyrdom is a big issue in the book of Daniel. We're going to see that as I preach in the next two weeks in Daniel 7. So that was Calvin. Okay, now he's called back to Geneva. This is interesting. Geneva became more and more unruly after Calvin left. Soon a group in Geneva felt the only way to restore order and continue the Reformation was to call Calvin back. So they sent an official embassy to go get him back. Now let me ask you, what do you think it would take to motivate Calvin to come back to Geneva? Oh, come on back. We'll be nice this time. We promise. Okay? Calvin was personally opposed to returning. His memories of Geneva were unhappy. Calvin said to Pharaoh, listen to this, quote, I would prefer a hundred other deaths to that cross on which I would have to die a thousand times a day. That's how he looked at going back to Geneva. And you'd say, why did he go? Well, he was, he was a man of duty. He loved the Lord and he wanted to serve him. And if God said go, fine, I'll go die a thousand times a day. And that's in effect what he did. They treated him very badly even when he returned. You don't got, yeah, absolutely. Don't tell God no. Yeah. Yeah. So he goes back. He agrees September 2nd, 1541 to return to Geneva under strict conditions, which they happily agreed to, and he would only do it temporarily. I'm only going back for a little while until you find somebody better or something like that. Turned out it was for the rest of his life. He never left Geneva again. Uh, I mean, he went on trips, but that was his home base for the rest of his life. Now, very interesting fact. Remember how Calvin preached. Verse by verse, exposition through books of the Bible. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Anyway, verse by verse, exposition through books of the Bible. He is evicted from Geneva, right? Well, he was somewhere in his exposition, right? Wherever he was. When he comes back after a number of years, where does he begin preaching? I'm telling you, I mean, this guy was amazing. He's like, all right, you know, you kicked me out. The Reformation stopped. Now I'm coming back. Let's pick up and keep moving. Yes, yeah, Steve. I don't know. I need to find what chapter of Romans was he in. I don't know. 
I, I really wish I'd, I'd try to hunt this down where he was at, and I couldn't find it in the time frame today. But I'd, I'd like to find out where he was at. But I know this is a fact. He began right where he was at and just kept moving. Message received, Mr. Calvin. We get it. Okay. He began his key work structuring the church according to scriptural principles in the city of Geneva as well. That includes civic government. There was no separation of church and state anywhere except Munster for about a year. Okay, and even then, frankly, it wasn't separation of church and state. That was like a cult. Anyway, a truly reformed community was sought. He was also a leader of the Reformation. Uh, I'm not going to read through all this. I mean, he just wrote tons of letters and was affecting many things. Let's look down at the, what John Knox said. Fiery Scottish reformer John Knox spent the years of his exile when he was kicked out of England, 1554 to 1559, he spent them in Geneva, training under Calvin. This period of Knox's life has been called the most formative of his entire development, and Knox's high opinion of Calvin's Geneva is well known from his famous assess assessment. This is what Knox wrote. Geneva is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. He set it up to instruct and teach people how to preach, how to live, how to run a church, just what to do. And people from all over Europe went there and were trained. And so he gave a great deal of attention toward a kind of a European reform. All right, now his writings. He, co he published commentaries on, I think this is right, 52 of the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, he finished his first commentary, that on Romans, in 1540, completing it about the same time as the second edition of the Institutes. He proceeded over the next 15 years to generate all his New Testament commentaries, finishing the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in 1555. During one remarkable stretch from 1546 to 1551, he published complete commentaries on 17 books of the Bible. That's five years, 17 books. Amazing. It represents an average of about 30 verse co verses commented on per month. Now, that's on top of just being a pastor. I mean, he would visit the sick, you know, do funerals, and on top of also being a full-time professor. So he's, pre he's preaching, he's teaching four sermons a week, writing letters, and then he goes home at night and cranks out a couple of verses on his commentary. Goes to bed. Unbelievable. It's, it's hard to even imagine how one person can get that much work done. And he didn't even have a word processor. How in the world? Five editions of the Institutes. This was the great contribution of John Calvin, a systematic methodology. Now, I have given you a chart here. I drew this up this afternoon so that you can understand the effect of John Calvin on your pastor more than anything else. All right. This is the what I call his majestic scriptural methodology. The forest and the trees. Forest and the trees. Now, when you talk about somebody who can't see the forest for the trees, what you're talking about is somebody who cannot see the big picture because he's so focused on what? details. He loses sight of the big picture because he's immersed in the details. Calvin never lost sight of the big picture, but he never lost sight of the details either. And that's the whole thing about him. It's just an incredible thing. There was a moving always from the forest to the trees, forest to the trees. Well, how did it work? Well, here's the forest. This is Calvin's Institutes, systematic theology, the big picture. What does the Bible say about everything? from the doctrine of creation to the doctrine of the end times, right on through, organized, worked on five editions, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, more thorough, more and more complete. All right? What else is he working on every day? Commenting on Scripture. Back and forth, back and forth, verse by verse, verse by verse, commenting on a verse of the Bible, working on the Institutes, commenting on a verse of the Bible, forest and the trees, forest and the trees, back and forth, big picture detail, big picture detail, all the time. Well, how did I write it down? All right, we've got the Institutes, five editions as, as the forest. We've got the commentaries on 52 books of the Bible. We've got big picture systematic biblical theology, verse by verse, 
details, clear and brief, always want to be clear and brief, brevid lucidity, lucid brevity, whatever. The forest would be what you could call um, a place for everything, everything in its place. Very organized. Calvin did that mentally. Everything had its place. See what I'm saying? All right. And correspondingly, the trees, the beauties, and the details. Ever heard of the devils in the details? With the scripture, it's just the opposite. The beauty is in the details. It was, it's like HDTV, high-density television. You know, It's just, wow, the vividness because of the details. That's kind of how it was. Or a scripture verse. Let everything be done decently and in good order. 1 Corinthians 14.40 And then man does not live on bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Does God waste his breath? If it's in the scripture, it's worth thinking about. Isn't it? It's worth reading and considering. There's no throwaways. So Calvin brought the two together better than anyone I've ever seen. Big picture and the details. And all of it poured down into his sermons because he's preaching four times a week. So in his sermons, and I've got a book of his sermons on Ephesians. I mean, this is just one of like 20 books like this. That's why Bart said, I don't understand it. How could anyone crank out this much stuff? But these were his sermons. Page after page, verse by verse through Ephesians. Amazing. And he's pouring them both in. You're getting both big picture and detail when he preaches through Ephesians. You understand how Ephesians, how this verse fits into the paragraph, how the paragraph fits into the chapter, the chapter into the whole book, and how the whole book fits into biblical theology. You're never losing your way. You know where you are. Isn't that amazing? And so for that, weekly preaching for the people, combine the best of both disciplines, feed my sheep, John 21, 17. Feed my sheep. Now this is what I try to do. When I preach through the book of Daniel, for example, I'm giving you verse by verse. I try not to skip anything. I have a sense that just where our church is at, it would not be helpful for me to be a year in Daniel, for example. So I'm going about a chapter a week. It's not easy to do. It's actually very tough to go that fast. You may think... That fast, believe me, when you're crunching through about 30 verses in 30 minutes, that's fast, and you're skipping things, all right? But I want to keep a good pace, but yet still have a sense that we're addressing the details. I think as we get more mature as a congregation, we'll be able to slow down a little bit and take a little more time, you know? And they'll be able to say, boy, we've been in such and such a book forever. We won't say that because you're getting fed. You see, there's just a steady stream of biblical truth. All right, one more thing, and we're not going to do the Reformation in England. I always leave something out. We'll start on that next week. What are the five points of Calvinism? All right. Well, first of all, let's understand about the five points. John Calvin did not put together TULIP or the five points of Calvinism. That came many, many years later by some Calvinist theologians who were responding to some Arminian theologians. All right. And they came up with the five points. The Arminian theologians who emphasized human decisions, a man-centered approach, let's say, as opposed to... Um, you know, Calvinism, you're talking about free will, an emphasis on free will. You've heard of free will Baptists, for example. They had five points. Basically, they're saying that human beings are free, there's no original sin, or that we are free at any time to repent and turn and believe and do all those good things, that God doesn't elect anybody, but that election is based on his knowledge that someday we'd believe in him, that Jesus died for the sins of everybody that's ever lived in the whole world. Amen, everybody. That grace can be resisted. Frankly, it's resisted all the time. People, God wants to save, but people um, don't want to be saved, and so they resist God's grace, and that you can lose your salvation. You can start out, walk for a while, and then in the end, end up in hell. Those are the five points that they're refuting. So they end up with tulip. So realize they, they spoke first, and the Calvinists responded to these five points, and they have tulip. Now, 
I've given you tulip here. T-U-L-I-P. Okay? I don't like tulip. I think tulip is inadequate. I have RISDEP instead. The problem with RISDEP is that it doesn't make an, an articulate word. Okay? Tulip does, and you can remember it. T for total depravity. Basically, the human beings are sinful and can't just suddenly decide to do right. Unconditional election. God does not choose because he sees something in us, but just because he chooses. He's sovereign. Okay? Limited atonement. Christ died for the elect, not for the whole world. The logic behind that is if Christ died for you, why would you end up in hell? In what sense then did Christ die for you if you end up in hell? That's their logic. Irresistible grace. When God wants you, he gets you. He is able to make you saved. He's able to save you and to work with you. And perseverance of the saints, that's the so-called once saved, always saved. Now, how have I re-articulated? Rizdep. Everyone say after me. Rizdep. Okay, thank you. Okay. Radical depravity, not total depravity. We're not as evil as we could be. Okay, the devil and his angels are as evil as they can be, right? We do some good things, kind of. And there's still the image of God in us, and there's still an echo there. But instead, sin goes to the root of our um, nature. Sovereign election. Oh, I guess we're done, aren't we? We got one out of the five points. Uh, sovereign, I'll go real quickly. Sovereign election. God chooses just because he's king, not because he sees something in us. Definite atonement. Christ died for the elect. Definitely. He knew your name. I call my sheep by name. They follow me. I die for them. I do these things for them. Effective grace. When God wants you, he gets you. He moves powerfully. And perseverance of God with the saints. Not that we persevere, but that God doesn't give up on us. All right? There, you got it. We'll talk more next time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.